Welcome back to uh, the Centerpoint uh, School of Theology. And uh, if you're uh, new this evening, uh, a very warm word of welcome to you. And uh, if you're not, uh, just commend you for your perseverance. Now, the problem with uh, looking at uh, theology, doctrine, what the Bible teaches from a big picture point of view... Uh, is that you keep on finding threads. Some of these threads go back to things you've already said, and when you pull these threads, some of these threads uh, attach to things that you haven't yet studied. That's the nature of looking at big-picture truths in the Bible. Uh, and uh, tonight's lesson is no exception. Uh, we'll, be, we'll be treading on a couple of things we've already looked at, uh, and we'll be looking ahead to some things that are way into our future, uh, sometime next year, uh, possibly. And um, I'm not apologizing so much for that, as just, just trying to convey that's the nature of studying uh, theology from a big picture point of view. And uh, so far, we've considered uh, under the doctrine of sin, or as theologians like to call it, harmatology, uh, the doctrine of sin, we've looked at uh, how sin came into the world and uh, we were looking especially at uh, the story of the Garden of Eden and uh, Adam's sin and how Adam's uh, sin uh, relates to uh, the presence of evil in the world uh, already and in, this, in the case of uh, Satan and the fallen angels. And then uh, last uh, uh, the, the, the week before last, uh, we were looking at the transmission of sin. Uh, sometimes we call that the doctrine of original sin. Uh, and especially we were looking at uh, Romans 5 and how in Adam all die. Uh, and then we, we kind of looked at a very specialist thing last week. Uh, again, a, consequences, uh, a consequence of original sin, uh, and that is the issue of free will uh, and its relationship to free agency. And uh, last week's was, was tough from a number of points of view. One, the acoustics of the building that we were in last week, and, and two, uh, the subject matter. Uh, tonight's ought to be a, a, little, a little easier, although, although maybe not. So let's, uh, let's have a look at it. Uh, I want to begin by asking what is sin? I know we've asked this before and there are various ways of answering this question and I want to try and answer it now in a way that we haven't answered it as yet. Uh, we, we, we think of sin as law-breaking, for example, uh, but I want to look at three particular uh, aspects of sin. First of all, um, that sin isn't something physical or material. Uh, that sin is not to be thought of as, uh, as belonging to creation itself, uh, that there's something sinful about the physical universe, that atoms and molecules and electromagnetism uh, is somehow inherently sinful. Now, uh, that, that issue will have all kinds of repercussions right at the end of our study. Uh, we're, we're still almost in 
protology at the very beginning, protos first. Uh, we're, at the, we're, we're, we're studying first things, but eventually we want to study last things, and uh, one of the very last things that we want to study is the new heavens and new earth, and how God uh, intends in his work of redemption to redeem us physically as well as spiritually. Uh, so at the heart of uh, the doctrine of last things is uh, an idea of resurrection, uh, the resurrection of the body, uh, the new heavens and the new earth uh, in, in which righteousness will, will dwell. And uh, that issue arose uh, during the 16th century, during the time of the Reformation. Uh, there was a little bit of a spat between uh, Lutherans, not so much Luther, but Lutherans, uh, and Calvinists in the 16th century about whether uh, sin was associated with the physical universe itself. And I've given you um, uh, this delicious name, Matthias Illyricus uh, Flacius or Flacius, a German Lutherer, that sin is something essential and substantial. Uh, and it was rejected uh, even among some Lutherans, the famous Lutheran formula of Concord, in 1577, we reject the false dogma of the Manichaeans, uh, Manichaeans belonging uh, to the period of the early church. Uh, we, we reject the false dogmas of the Manichaeans where it is taught that original sin is, as it were, something essential and substantial infused by Satan into the nature and mingled with the same as wine and poison are mixed. That's addressing the issue of sin being something inherently physical. Now, we, we, still, we still, as Christians, you move among Christian circles, and, and uh, what is regarded as holy uh, sometimes can be don't touch, don't taste, um, because there's something inherently sinful about the material itself. Uh, if I raise and then immediately close the door, uh, for example, is, is, is the chemical constitution of alcohol in and of itself sinful? I'm not asking other than that. Just, just is, is the physical chemical formula in itself something inherently sinful? And uh, you'll see that that issue arises again in different forms at different times uh, in the history of the church. So sin is... Is, uh, is not something physical or material. Uh, what about the idea of sin as privation? Uh, this is another uh, issue. It, it arises uh, with Augustine uh, back in the early church. Uh, sin is deprivation or the loss of the good, a very famous statement that Augustine uh, made. Uh, and, and sometimes uh, sin is regarded as accidental, uh, that is not inherent to the material. Um, uh, sin is more than that. Uh, I, I'm not happy with regarding sin as, as merely the, the loss of the good, merely the absence of good. Um, sin, is, uh, sin is something active and corrupting and destructive. Um, it, has a, it has a force uh, of its own. It has a life uh, of its own. And then a third issue, uh, sin, sin is voluntary. Uh, the issue of, of, uh, volunt uh, of uh, vo uh, the, the use of our will in sin. 
And I won't uh, read through all these uh, uh, quotations here, um, but the third one and the longest one by Babink there is, is saying this, um, that, that even, even when it appears as though sin is something involuntary on our part, it is, it is never really involuntary. It still comes from us, as it were. Uh, it is still part of of uh, the constitution of uh, of humanity. It's part of our free agency. Now let's brush all of that aside and let's look at some biblical words for sin. Uh, and uh, I've transliterated them here: uh, Hebrew words and Greek words. Um, just uh, just scan over them, and what is it that immediately impresses you uh, about that? And, and it is this, uh, that there are a lot of words in the Bible for sin. Uh, that the Bible has a lot to say about sin. There is, a, there is an entire vocabulary of sin in the Bible, both in uh, the Hebrew and in the Greek. Uh, so the Bible is, in one sense, uh, about sin. It has a lot to say about sin. Now, if you turn back to the opening page, page one, a very famous book by Carl Menninger uh, in the 1970s, Whatever Became of Sin, uh, the very word sin, which seems to have disappeared, was once a proud word. It was once a strong word, an ominous and serious word. But the word went away. It has almost disappeared. The word along with the notion. Why? Doesn't anyone sin anymore? Doesn't anyone believe in sin? Well, of course, you can, uh, you can listen to uh, the radio or watch TV or read your newspapers and you'll hardly ever uh, hear anyone uh, admit of sin. Uh, people make mistakes, uh, but they hardly ever confess uh, sin. Uh, but the Bible has a great deal to say about sin. And sin is more than one thing. So sin is to miss uh, the mark. Uh, Sin is related to law, so that when we sin, we are guilty. Not just that we feel guilty. You may be guilty and not feel guilty. Uh, The point is that you are guilty as far as the law is concerned. You are culpable to the the penalty of that law. Uh, Sin is rebellion, uh, refusal to be subject to authority. Uh, Sin is a transgression, crossing over a boundary. Uh, sin is uh, ungodliness, uh, being unlike God, or being anti-God, or opposed to God. Uh, we were created in the image of God, but sin uh, causes us to be against God, uh, not to reflect uh, godly patterns. Uh, sin is an act of treachery, or idolatry, or lawlessness, or uh, to make a false step or trip, to, to fall aside, to, to overstep, uh, stepping over the boundary. Uh, sin is, uh, is impiety. Uh, sin is failing to listen. Uh, sin is uh, injustice or wrongdoing. An entire vocabulary then of, of uh, sin. Now let's uh, think about current views of uh, sin. And I'm, uh, I'm generalizing here, uh, drawing from uh, four uh, areas. One, uh, the world of materialism. Uh, if you are essentially a materialist, 
that all there is is matter. All there is is uh, molecules and atoms and uh, chemical reactions and electromagnetism and uh, gravity and whatever. Uh, that's all there is. Uh, sin is exclusively electrochemical imbalances leading to biological dysfunction. And if that's all there is, then the solution is chemical. Uh, drugs, electrical stimulus, uh, reboot, uh, and, uh, and start again. Um, I'm, not, I'm not saying for one minute uh, that that is not an aspect of our humanity. It certainly is. Uh, we are psychosomatic. We are both body and spirit. We are both body and soul. We have a psyche as well as a physical body, and, uh, and uh, the, the, the problem may well be a material problem, but that is not all the problem. Uh, it is, it is uh, the fallacy of uh, what uh, one uh, professor once called nothing buttery, uh, the fallacy of nothing buttery, that we are nothing but uh, electromagnetic imbalances, and therefore uh, the cure is always to be a material or a materialistic cure. Or from the world of uh, psychology or self-esteem, uh, sin is having a low view of self, and therefore uh, the solution is uh, self-acceptance. Uh, you, you learn to forgive yourself, uh, whatever that means. Uh, or uh, humanism, uh, that sin is uh, hurting others. Uh, we come across it uh, fairly fairly frequently these days, so long as nobody gets hurt. Uh, that's, that's the Sermon on the Mount, for those who've never read the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, that's what they think the Sermon on the Mount is saying, so long as nobody else gets hurt. That becomes uh, the be-all and end-all of our ethical uh, standard. Uh, do no harm. Uh, or environmentalism, uh, a form of technically panentheism, uh, sin is being out of sync with the environment, uh, being out of sync with Mother Nature, uh, and the solution is to close your eyes and hum and get in touch with, uh, with uh, Mother Nature. And uh, the, uh, uh, the uh, popularity uh, of uh, that uh, uh, today. Now, let's uh, think of further effects of sin. We've already uh, thought about free will and the issue of uh, the bondage of the will uh, last week. Uh, what about some personal consequences of the result of sin? Uh, the loss of identity. Now, this is a very modern uh, phenomenon. Uh, it's one, I think, that uh, modern folk, folk of our age, uh, are particularly aware of and, and acutely aware of. Uh, this uh, statement by Kierkegaard, uh, sin is in despair, not wanting to be oneself before God. Faith is that the self in being itself and wanting to be itself is grounded transparently in God. That's a very profound statement. Uh, it's an Ecclesiastes kind of statement. Outside of Outside of a, a, a biblical worldview, outside of a theistic worldview, you, you lose your identity. You don't know who you are anymore. Unless you see yourself as a created being bearing the image of God, you are, you are lost. You don't know who you are. And that's a consequence of sin. Uh, so little wonder uh, that we are surrounded by people who don't really know who they are. 
and don't really know why they are here and don't really know what their purpose in life is, and that's true of not just teenagers. Uh, Augustine says, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Famous opening uh, sentence uh, of Augustine's confessions, that we that in coming, in coming by faith in Christ into fellowship with God, we as it were come home. It's a, it's a, it's a feeling of coming home. It's, it's finding our true identity. And the restlessness goes away. We are at peace. A peace that passes all understanding. Uh, Sin, then, is not finding our identity in submission and service to God. Sin is viewed in terms of self-worth. If I view my self-worth as being a good parent and I fail, then I have no worth. And redemption means finding one's value and worth in Christ. And that's uh, that's so important to stress, that our identity, our our self-worth, our self-image is to be found in Jesus. It's always looking to Jesus. It's my identity to Jesus. It's I belong to him. It's I'm a child of the king. Uh, With Jesus, my savior, I'm the child of a king. Uh, What about social uh, consequences? Uh, Social disintegration. Uh, the, the um, The loss of optimism. I have a quote here from Dorothy Sayers, um, which uh, she's commenting uh, about uh, um, intellectuals after the Second World War uh, who uh, were at a loss to understand uh, what uh, what was happening, the so-called progress, post-Enlightenment, post-Kantian, Uh, sense of progress, that that humanity was progressing, that the world was getting better and better, uh, that uh, industry and and science and medicine and all of these things would come and improve humanity and humanity was getting better and better and then comes World War I and then World War II and uh, people were at a loss uh, to understand this, uh, this, this societal disintegration. Uh, that, uh, that we see uh, all around us uh, today, uh, another consequence of sin. Or the cosmic unrest. And again, this is a thread. If I start pulling this thread, it goes back to something that we looked at in the Garden of Eden. A curse fell upon the cosmos. A f- curse fell upon the ground as a consequence of Adamic sin. So Paul takes it up in Romans 8 that the world is out of joint. It's travailing in birth, waiting for the renewal uh, of all things. And you keep pulling at this thread and you end up in the book of Revelation. And God is going to renew the cosmos. And he's going to renew the, the heavens and, and the earth. Uh, creation then adrift. So there are all kinds of consequences. Personal, social cosmic consequences to sin. What about uh, classifying sin? Types of sin. Uh, The famous seven deadly sins. 
Uh, for some reason that I can't quite understand, they've, they've come back into fashion again uh, in recent years, even in our own circles, uh, uh, even, even our own uh, favorite publishers are publishing books based on the seven deadly sins. There are Bible study groups out there studying the seven deadly sins. There are preachers, uh, reformed preachers preaching on the seven deadly sins. Uh, these, of course, were sins put together uh, and classified uh, uh, by Thomas Aquinas. Uh, and uh, pride, covetousness, lust, envy, gluttony, anger, and sloth. And I wonder, uh, I wonder if you were b- blindly now to be asked, uh, name the seven most deadliest sins that you can think of without knowing anything about these, this list of seven. I wonder how many of those seven, I'm sure most of us would get lust in there somewhere, covetousness, if we know anything about the Bible. I'm, I'm not sure we'd have gluttony and sloth uh, in there, uh, but for Aquinas, certainly, uh, this, these, these were among the seven most deadly uh, of uh, sins. It's a way of classifying and a helpful way. Of classifying, uh, of classifying sins. Uh, what about uh, sins against God, neighbor, and self? Another way of classifying sin. Uh, there are sins against God. Uh, there are sins against our fellow man, our neighbor. Uh, but we can also sin against ourselves. Uh, not, uh, not, not being the kind of people that God intended us to, uh, to be. Or what about um, the famous uh, statement, uh, we're we're probably more familiar with it, some of us, from the Book of Common Prayer than we are from the Latin uh, Mass, Uh, but sins of thought, word, and deed. Uh, That expression actually comes from uh, a great confessional in in the Latin Mass, but it was was, uh, sanctified uh, by uh, Thomas Cranmer in the Book of Common Prayer. Uh, Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. Uh, In our thought world, in our thinking, in our speech, and in our actions. Again, trying to classify um, sin. Uh, John, in 1 John 2.16, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. Another, uh, Another brief attempt at classifying uh, three particular areas of sin. Uh, Sins of commission and omission, things that we do and things that we fail to do. Uh, That failing to do something that we ought to do is a sin. So we we can sin positively, but we can also sin negatively by failing to do what we ought to do. A secret and open Sins. Uh, that becomes important when we think of the, the, the counter image of sin is repentance, repentance from sin, uh, and repentance, how do you repent of secret sins and how do you repent of open sins? Or let's, let's change the language to private and public. There are sins that are private and there are sins that are public. Private sins should be repented of privately. Public sins should be repented of publicly. I'm not in favor of repenting publicly of private sins. You don't have any business knowing all of my sins. Some of my sins are between me and and God. And that's true for you 
too. It's when they become public and they affect other people uh, that that becomes uh, another issue. But again, it's a a way of classifying that there are sins that are private. Uh, They belong to our personal thought world, perhaps. Uh, They're part of our of what Augustine would call part of our concupiscence, our our desire world. Uh, And then there are public sins uh, that that are full-grown and manifest themselves in uh, in terms of uh, uh, sinning against neighbor. Um, What about uh, gradations in sin? I'm asking here another question. uh, are, Are some sins more sinful than others? Most of us, I think, would answer that positively, that some sins are more heinous than others. Uh, Our system of jurisprudence, our system of uh, law, is based on the idea that some sins deserve greater punishment than others. Some are lesser reprimands than others. Uh, this is an issue that uh, the great church fathers uh, deliberated on, Tertullian, uh, Augustine. Uh, Catholicism uh, thought about this issue and came up with uh, a distinction between mortal and venial sins. Uh, a venial sin is a lesser sin, a sin that does not result in complete separation from God and eternal damnation in hell. Um, there are some, some uh, criterion, uh, there are some criteria for uh, a venial sin. It must not be what, what is considered to be a grave matter or, or committed with full knowledge or uh, with full and deliberate consent. Each venial sin adds to the penance that must be done. Penance undone leads to a greater punishment in purgatory. Now, venial sins don't um, add up to become a mortal sin. I mean, even if you have 100 venial sins, they don't, if you have 101, they don't become a mortal sin. Uh, certain sins don't bring us under the curse of God. That's what uh, venial sins uh, are. Now, a mortal sin is the opposite. A mortal sin in Catholic thought is a, is a grave matter uh, committed with full knowledge or full deliberate consent. And unless confessed and absolved in the sacrament of penance, a person who dies with unconfessed mortal sin leads a soul straight to hell. Now, mortal sins can include... Uh, abortion and adultery and divorce and euthanasia, masturbation, drug abuse, pornography, rape, prostitution, suicide. Uh, this is Catholic thought now. This is a distinction between venial and mortal sin. Uh, there is forgiveness for these sins, but you have to confess them and receive absolution in the sacrament uh, of uh, penance. That's why. In Catholic thought, there can be no forgiveness for suicide. I, I do not hold that. I, I, I do believe that there is forgiveness for suicide. Um, uh, but in Catholic thought, there, there cannot be forgiveness for suicide because they, they, they don't have the opportunity to confess or to receive absolution. Now, Calvin uh, rejected this distinction. Uh, in a famous uh, statement, let the children of God hold that all sin is mortal. 
for it is rebellion against the will of God. Right? So the distinction between venial and mortal Calvin, uh, uh, Calvin rejects. But of course, uh, apart from unbelief, uh, there is also forgiveness for all of these mortal sins too. And that forgiveness is by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone in the gospel that cleanses us from all sin. Past, present, and future. And future. Now Paul, uh, uh, citing... Uh, in, uh, in Galatians 3.10, citing from Deuteronomy, makes every sin potentially mortal. Uh, all who rely on the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, uh, and do them. And uh, James says something similar in James 2.10. So we don't, uh, we don't accept, Protestants don't accept this distinction between mortal and venial sins. Uh, in one sense, all sins are mortal sins, but there is forgiveness for all sin in the gospel. Uh, what about sins of the spirit and sins of the body? Uh, now, Augustine, uh, again, we've uh, looked at this word concupiscence, this uh, this insatiable desire uh, that is a part uh, of fallen humanity, uh, sometimes associated with the, with the idea of lust, that insatiable carnal appetite, uh, which he regarded as secondary to the chief sin of pride. Right? So there was, uh, there was a gradation between concupiscence and pride. Uh, Romans 1, uh, Romans 1, uh, 24 through 32, God gave up those who, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. Uh, and, and, and then they are given up to these, and there are, they follow this list of bodily sins. So there's a distinction in Romans 1, it seems to me, between sins of the spirit or sins of the, of the mind or sins of desire and the actual physical uh, manifestation of those uh, sins. And that's going to be important uh, when we think about um, mortifying sin. Um, that that mortification has to take place in the spirit, in the mind, at the place of sin's uh, birth, if you like, at the place of the inception of sin. Uh, we, can, we can externalize, and, and, and uh, the Bible won't allow us to do that. There is an, there's an internalness to sin. Uh, what about the distinction based on the degree of knowledge that a sinner has? Uh, think of the words of Jesus. And that servant uh, who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will, will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what, deser- and, and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Uh, everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required, and from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. In, in other words... Uh, there, is a, there is an understanding here of culpability uh, that is based on, on knowledge. The more, the more knowledge you have, the more culpable you are. The more, 
the more you've heard the gospel, the more you've heard the teachings of the scriptures, the more, the more culpable uh, we are. Matthew 10:15. truly I say to you, it'll be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town, uh, and he mentions, uh, he's referring to a town uh, that has heard the gospel and didn't respond to it. Uh, and uh, they will be punished more for having heard the gospel and not responding than Sodom and Gomorrah that didn't hear the gospel. That's, that's the point that's being uh, made. Uh, so, so the lack of knowledge reduces the gravity of the sin. Now, what about the distinction between unintentional and intentional sins? Uh, between high-handed and, um, uh, and this, uh, sins committed with a high hand. Um, Numbers 15 uh, distinguishes here uh, that atonement was possible for anyone who sinned um, unintentionally. Uh, but then in verse uh, 30 of Numbers 15, if, but the person who does anything with a high hand... Right? Sins intentionally, knowingly, whether he is native or a sojourner, reviles the Lord, and that person, sh- that person shall be cut off from among his people. Right? There's, a, there's a sin with a high hand, intentional and unintentional sin. Uh, Ian uh, Dugid, or is it Dugid, Dugid, Dugid? Uh, he's one of our Dugid. Uh, he's one of our ministers, an ARP minister, uh, and uh, he's written this helpful, I thought, comment on, on that passage in Numbers. Uh, such persons could not have their sins forgiven through the sacrificial system because they had no desire for the relationship with God that the system was designed to restore. Until their proud defiance was broken, they could not have fellowship with God. As long as they remained in such a defiant state, they did not belong to the people of God. And so the Israelites were instructed that such people must be cut off. And so there is, there, there's an intentional sin, sin with a high hand, sin of defiance, sin that wants nothing to do with the ways of God, unrepentant sin, if you like. And then there's, there's unintentional uh, sin. Uh, what about the unforgivable sin? Uh, the sin against the Holy Spirit, the sin of uh, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit that will not be forgiven, uh, Luke, 10, Luke 12, 10. Uh, often associated with something said in Hebrews chapter 6 and Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, that uh, the, person, uh, the person who is once enlightened, who tastes of the heavenly gift uh, and, 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 and then commits an act of apostasy and that that person, uh, that person cannot be restored. Um, what is this unforgivable sin? Uh, let's, uh, let's look at that uh, definition there by Louis Burkhoff. Uh, the conscious, malicious, and willful reject, rejection and slandering against evidence of the testimony of the Holy Spirit respecting the grace of God in Christ, attributing it 
out of hatred and enmity to the prince of darkness. Uh, there, there are some who uh, regard the unforgivable sin as, as unbelief. That, that what, uh, what Jesus is talking about in these passages, or what Hebrews 6 is talking about, or what Hebrews 10 is talking about, uh, or perhaps what uh, John is even talking about in 1 John 5.16, which, which he calls a sin unto death, uh, there are some who think that that is unbelief. Because unbelief cannot be forgiven. If you die in unbelief, there is no forgiveness. If you don't believe the gospel, if you don't believe Jesus, there is no forgiveness. Uh, There's no possibility of forgiveness. There is no uh, post-mortem evangelism uh, for the one who dies in unbelief. And so there is a a view, and it's it's become more and more popular today, especially in our circles, uh, that uh, that the the unforgivable sin is, is unbelief. That is... Unbelief right up to the point of death, meaning, meaning if you die in unbelief, there is no forgiveness. I don't think that that's exegetically warrantable. Uh, I, don't think that's what, um, I don't think that's what Jesus is speaking about in these uh, passages, and I, I don't think that's what uh, the author of Hebrews is talking about in chapter 6. Um, the un- uh, look at John Piper under, under number 6 there, John Piper on page 9, uh, and I've given you a link to a sermon of John Piper's on this, which I thought was very helpful. Um, the unforgivable sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is an act of resistance which belittles the Holy Spirit so grievously that he withdraws forever with his convicting power so that we are never able to repent and be, uh, and be uh, forgiven. Um, so John Piper views the unforgivable sin as something, something that can be committed, uh, uh, an act of apostasy that can be committed at a certain point in a person's life. And thereafter, there is an impossibility of repentance. There is an impossibility of uh, forgiveness. Um, This is a really difficult issue. Uh, My own view is that the the unforgivable sin is is a deliberate, defiant act of apostasy. Now, does that scare you? It should, and it's a good thing. It's a good thing. We should be scared. We should be terrified by it. We should be absolutely terrified by it and run to Jesus, because that's the answer. Not wallow in that terror, but run to Jesus and embrace him with both arms. Uh, As those arms are outstretched and says, whoever comes to me I shall in no wise cast out. Because in Jesus, there is no fear of apostasy. It's outside of Jesus that there is a fear of apostasy. Now, I, uh, this raises all kinds of pastoral questions because people think, you know, if they, they, they've, they've done something. They've, they've committed something terrible. They've done some terrible thing, awful thing, unspeakable thing. And it haunts them. And they, they fear that they've committed the unforgivable sin. You know... Was that thing that I did uh, when I was 16 or 18 or 23, was that the unforgivable sin? And, I, and all I can say to you is, go to Jesus. 
His arms are open wide. Say, say, Lord Jesus, forgive me. And he will forgive you. Because if you have committed the unforgivable sin, you won't be running to Jesus. You will be defying him. You'll be hating him. You'll be uttering all kinds of blasphemies against him. You run to Jesus and he will not cast you out, ever, for whatever. All manner of sin, all manner of sin is forgiven in Jesus. No matter what you've done, how bad it was, how terrible it was. That's the beauty, that's the wondrous beauty of the gospel. But yes, does it terrify you? It should. It should. It should make us persevere. It should make us run every day. Every day you run to the gospel. Every day you run to Jesus. Now what about the deceitfulness of sin? Uh, Hebrews 3.13 Exhort one another every day uh, lest you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is deceitful. Sin will say it's not a sin. Sin will say, you know, it's not as bad as so-and-so's sin. I mean, there are, worse, there are worse people in the world than me. And what are you doing? You're making light of sin. It deceives you. Let everyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Um, the sinfulness of sin... Uh, It's what Paul is talking about in Romans 7, uh, that through the commandment, through the law, sin might become sinful beyond measure. Uh, We're in the realm of of the experience of sin. Banner of Truth uh, published uh, a Puritan paperback by Ralph Venning called The Sinfulness of Sin. Great title. Probably didn't sell well, uh, but a great title. The sinfulness of sin. The hardening of sin. That text in Hebrews again. uh, That none of you may be hardened. You know, when you commit sin the first time, you're, 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 you're very sensitive to it. But then you don't confess it, so you commit it again. And you reach a point where you no longer see it as sinful. And you grow calluses. And you shake somebody's hand and you can always tell a farmer, you know, their hands are rough. Not so many rough hands in Colombia, but, but, you know, you go out to the country and you shake those hands and they're rough. Uh, it's like sandpaper. You're, you're grabbing hold of sandpaper. Uh, their hands have become calloused. That's the hardening effect of, of sin. Conviction of sin. Um... I'm thinking here, I'll I'll pass over this uh, fairly quickly here, but I'm thinking here of the issue of the rich young ruler who comes running up to Jesus. Great question. Good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Great question. I wish wish that would happen every day. Somebody would come running up to you instead of having to think up how am I going to get the gospel in here? What am I going to say to try and and begin this conversation? This, this uh, This is a... This is a dream come true. This, this young man with his whole future before him. The kind, of, the kind of young man that the church really wants to be saved. 
because he's, he's leadership material and he's rich. <laughs> and Jesus took him to the law. Remember, he took him to the law and eventually came to the 10th commandment, thou shalt not covet. And because the young man said, you know, all of these, all of these I have, I have obeyed from my youth upwards. Really? You know, it's like the person who says, you know, I live by the Sermon on the Mount. You know, you know that person has never read the Sermon on the Mount. There's, there's no way they've ever read the Sermon on the Mount. If they say, I, I live by the standards of the Sermon of, on the Mount, do no harm. Uh, Jesus let the rich young man go. Told him to sell all that he had, give to the poor. He loved his riches more than he loved Jesus. He had no conviction of sin. He didn't see his need. How much conviction do you need? Well, enough to send you to the gospel, is the answer. Uh, Spurgeon said, if, you're, if, you're, if your conviction is as thin as a spider's thread, so long as it runs to Jesus. Um, forgiveness of sin, number 12, forgiveness of sin. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. There's the gospel in the middle of the Old Testament. There's the gospel in the book of Psalms. There is forgiveness with God that he may be feared. There's forgiveness in Jesus. There's forgiveness in the gospel. Uh, Spafford's hymn, It is well with my soul, my sin, know the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Well, that thread leads on to other areas and, and to areas of, of justification and, and uh, definitive sanctification, and, and that is a lesson for a future, uh, a future time. But the forgiveness of sin, there is forgiveness of sin in the gospel. Uh, the power of sin, number 13. Uh, the power of sin, uh, that, that Christians, Christians who are saints... Right? We are called to be saints. We are the called holy ones. That's what we are. We, as Christians who have come by faith and embraced the gospel, we are saints. We are holy ones. We are, we are declared forensically righteous in the sight of, of God. But uh, sin may have been dethroned from its position of kingly authority, but it hasn't gone away. And the problem is that although sin has been dethroned, we sometimes don't believe that it has been dethroned. So when sin says do this, we say, how long for? And how many times? And so you have the tension in Galatians 5 and, and Romans 7, the good that I would I do not, the evil that I would not, that I find that I do, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death. The ongoing power of sin, and that thread we'll come back to when we look at the doctrine of sanctification, as is the case with mortification of sin. Sin is something in the lives of believers that needs to be mortified, that needs to be put to death. 
uh, Colossians 3 and Romans 8.13 uh, to put sin to death. As uh, John Owen says, and I'm, I'm quoting this from memory and, and libbing it a little, uh, that we are to kill a sin or a part of a sin every day. Right? We are always to be about killing sin, destroying sin, putting sin to death. What about the eradication of sin? Well, that will only come in heaven. Uh, Spurgeon once met a, a gentleman uh, in Waterloo Station. Came up to him. He'd been uh, impressed by Wesleyan perfectionism. Was telling uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon uh, how that he had become perfect, at least in the Wesleyan sense. And uh, the story is that that Spurgeon trod on his toes and the man reacted somewhat unholily and Spurgeon says there I knew you weren't, ho- you weren't perfect uh, the eradication of sin nothing unclean will ever enter it that is the new city of God in heaven well there's, uh, there's the big picture uh, story of uh, sin from Genesis to Uh, revelation. Let's pray together. Father, we have uh, been thinking about sin, and sin is so much a part of our lives. In the gospel, you have forgiven us our sins, and yet we still struggle with sin. It has been dethroned, but its presence is still in our lives, and sometimes we don't believe that it has been dethroned, and when it tells us to jump, we simply say, how far? And we ask for strength, for the power of your spirit to put sin to death every day, to lay the axe upon the root of indwelling sin and uh, ask for your grace and mercy. Uh, So to deal with that desire uh, that the good that we would, we, we do not, and the evil that we would not, we find that we do, that the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh and these are contrary the one to the other we look forward to that day when we shall be wholly uh, free from sin when sin will be wholly and completely eradicated in heaven to that end we pray that we might run with perseverance watchful of the hardening effect of sin and looking unto Jesus the author and finisher of our faith We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.